So this morning I'd like to say a few words around the theme of equanimity. Equanimity or upeka in Pali is a word that you will encounter again and again. It's often defined as being the perfect, unshakable balance of mind rooted in insight. It runs through the discourses, this emphasis, it runs through such a range of the meditative styles that are taught in the path of awakening. Um, It's presented as being the quality, the ennobling quality of heart that allows us to be present in the world with wisdom. We see that equanimity is one of the Brahma-viharas. In a way, almost equanimity is the fruition of the first three Brahma-viharas of kindness, of compassion, of appreciative joy. It is one of the paramis, the perfections of heart that are said to be the intrinsic fabric of compassion. It is, of course, also the fourth jhana, the fourth state of absorption. It's said to be the fruition of insight that protects the mind from the worldly winds, the extremes of experience and feeling that so often knock us off balance. It's also, equanimity is also said to be the quality of heart that allows us to step off the wheel of dependent origination, the map that shows us how our personal world is constructed and indeed contracted moment to moment. I think even more importantly, equanimity is often used interchangeably with liberation. The blowing out of the fires of greed, hatred and delusion. Having the power to to transform our hearts, to transform our minds. I'd like to read you just a short verse from the Udana Suttas in praise of equanimity. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. When no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. Where no coming or going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. When neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond nor a state between. This verily is the end of suffering. Here the Buddha is speaking so clearly of this fruition of equanimity as really the cessation of ignorance, the cessation of suffering, the cessation of all agitation, the cessation of all ideas of arising and passing, of coming and going, of moving towards, moving away from. Personally, I love this verse. I think it's one of the most startling verses in the Buddhist discourses. Now, conversely, this word equanimity is uh, 
Not a word we use a lot in the English language, at least. Nor is it a quality we even hear being very highly recommended. Recommended. So, is the absence of this word in our language just a just a question of language, or is it something more? It's probably rare for any of us when we meet someone we haven't seen in a while, or someone asks us who we are, how we are. Would probably be fairly rare for us to answer. You know, I'm having a really equanimous day. It just wouldn't arise. Why not? Mostly, we want to report many things, many events. I'm happy. I'm sad. This happened to me. I made this happen. I'm doing this. I'm engaged in this. How much of our life revolves around events? Because how much of our sense of self, of course, also is defined by events. Equanimity, in that sense, seems even scary. It might mean we're somehow no one, or it's associated with being kind of flat or bland or uninteresting. So, what are the kind of opposite qualities of equanimity, or what is it that arouses any kind of resistance or lack of affinity with the word equanimity or the quality of equanimity in our culture? What does it challenge? Well, I think it challenges our love of intensity. I think it challenges our addiction to events. I think equanimity, on its deepest level, challenge our whole challenges our whole desire for becoming, to become someone, to be able to have a description, a definition of who we are. Equanimity, in a way, kind of seems to cool all of that. So I think we equanimity can challenge that addiction, but it also raises, I think, our fear of boredom, endemic in our culture, because we see the way that boredom is almost equated with a sort of death of self, a disappearance of self, that I am not, nothing is happening, therefore I'm bored. I think it challenges our, that craving to be someone, raises the fear of being no one, because we see how much our whole sense of me is an event that arises in relationship to other events. The Buddha, when he got up from the Bodhi tree, I think it's reported that he stated, I gained absolutely nothing from complete unexcelled awakening. Ah, when we practice, we often have a sort of background thought of all the things we would actually like to gain from complete unexcelled awakening. We see how much agitation in our minds really revolves around going somewhere, getting something, becoming someone. Without that, we could imagine a very dull life, and we really don't want to be uninteresting. So, 
what I want to look at, whether these fears are really true, what is the nature of equanimity, what does it look like as a practice, what is its effect upon our hearts, our minds, our lives. And this is not about talking about some abstract, idealized state. It is really a moment-to-moment practice. One translation of upekha or equanimity is the willingness to be equally near all things. Colloquially in India, it it was often translated as to see with patience. To see with patience. To see all of the arisings, the passings, the events, the movements towards and away, away from. To see with patience. Sometimes upekha is translated as to look over and to be a guardian of. What is equanimity guarding? It is guarding that poise, that capacity for inner balance and steadiness. Sometimes upekha is translated to stand in the middle of all of this. To stand in the middle. The sense of poise. So as a practice, where do we cultivate equanimity? Well, I think the answer to that is probably fairly evident. That we cultivate equanimity in the very places where we are not willing to stand in the middle of all of this. In the very places where we find ourselves knocked off balance by the events of the body, the events of our mind, the range of emotions that arise and pass. We cultivate equanimity in the very places where we find ourselves being reactive. Now, what, as a practice, one of the places where equanimity is frequently spe- spoken of is in the midst of what are called the eight worldly winds. Praise and blame, success and failure, pleasure and pain, gain and loss. None of us will ever be completely free of these worldly winds. And yet they are the places, not only in our life, but also in our practice, where we can get so knocked off balance. A pleasant sitting. Do we acknowledge it will probably change? Or do we find that movement towards, how do I keep this? An unpleasant sitting or walking. How do we respond to that? Praise and blame. Well, we don't get a lot of that externally here, but we can do a lot of it internally. I'm doing so well. I'm finally getting somewhere. I'm doing so badly. I'm not getting anywhere. Everyone else is doing better than me. Success and failure, gain and loss, is all part of the setup for the loss of balance because we only ever want one half of those pairs. We only want the pleasant part and not that which is unpleasant. And so we see how often these worldly winds set off the agitations of clinging, of fear, of aversion and resistance. And here we are learning not to armor ourselves against those extremes of experience, but the willingness to be equally near. 
calming the restlessness, calming the agitation. The whole cycle, the whole momentum of running between highs and lows, elation and depression, excitement and boredom, fear and hope, we can even see this actually as being quite normal. But the effect of that momentum is actually, I think, a deep inner exhaustion. Because again, it is resting upon the belief system that the well-being of our hearts really rests upon being able to control not only the conditions of our lives, but the conditions of our own minds. In Buddhist teaching, it would be suggested that these running between these extremes is anything but normal. That is a momentum that undermines our well-being. There are a lot of supporting factors of equanimity. If we think of equanimity as a practice, it's very much tied in with a whole range of other supporting factors. As a practice, certainly one of the supporting factors is integrity, the bliss of blamelessness. Mindfulness is a supporting factor of equanimity. What we so see is that the more unconscious we are in our lives, the more vulnerable we are to being caught by the winds of life. The mind that is calm is a mind that is grounded, that is strong, and it is less prone to being lost in the thinking that fuels the reactivity. The cultivation of ease cultivation of spaciousness, of well-being, as a conscious cultivation, has, is a powerful supporting factor of equanimity. We see that any time we get lost in impatience, in tension, in excitement, we disconnect from that ground of calmness and ease, and equanimity soon disappears. An essential supporting factor of equanimity is the very profound understanding of impermanence. Without that understanding, equanimity is highly inaccessible. We know this, we know that things change, but in the midst of events, we tend to have bouts of amnesia. Everything changes, but this pain but this state of mind, um, but this fear, this anxiety, we see in, the, in that how the amnesia arises. We forget this too is process. This too will change. To see with patience. What does it mean to see with patience? The acceptance of the first noble truth is a powerful supporting factor of equanimity. That there is unsatisfactoriness in life. There simply is. Sometimes there is pain in life. There simply, it simply is. It's not wrong. It's not bad. It is not the place to begin a great argument with what is. That acceptance is actually a powerful journey for many of us that so much of our agitation and lack of poise 
comes much more in the feeling this should not be. Maybe other people have unsatisfactoriness, but if I try hard enough, I won't be subject to the first noble truth. You know, and somehow that if I'm subject to the first noble truth of unsatisfactoriness, it's saying something about my lack of effort, or my lack of trying, or my lack of forcing, rather than this is. This simply is. We see that the argument with what is so easily shifts into identification with experience, with events, which is also slipping into the identification with me. Equanimity is deeply hindered by clinging. It's deeply hindered by identification. The feeling this is happening to me, I am making this happen. It is the second layer that we put on top of unsatisfactoriness. The second arrow that is optional. And we can so see see in our experience that the more identified we are with anything at all is the degree of imbalance we will find in that moment. All of these supporting factors of mindfulness, of of calmness, of inquiry, of insight into impermanence, they're all cooperating together in the fabric of equanimity. Equanimity is also, it's important to remember how much it is linked in with the Brahma-viharas of kindness and compassion. It's a saying that love gives to equanimity its boundless nature. Compassion guards equanimity from falling into indifference. Equanimity gives selflessness to love, gives patience, courage, and fearlessness to compassion. And it guards appreciative joy from sentimentality. It is almost as if equanimity is the crown of the other three Brahma-viharas. So it's not emotionally neutral. It is not emotionally neutral. It is rooted in kindness, rooted in compassion. Now, equanimity has much to do with understanding and cooling some of the mind storms that we experience in our practice and in our life. When we trace any psychological or emotional event or storm back to its beginning, we see it is a process of constructing and building a world. It is where equanimity really is so central to understanding dependent origination or the construction of our world. Because in the process of constructing our world, Vedana is, has been disconnected from equanimity. The feeling tones of experience has been disconnected from equanimity. In order for a world to be constructed in the moment, my personal world, it relies upon Vedana being separated from equanimity. And it is the place where equanimity is really brought into the core feeling tones of experience. 
Now, the Vedana we talked about very much in the first week of the retreat, the pleasant, the unpleasant, the perceptions, events and experiences that are neither pleasant nor unpleasant, arising on contact, the meeting of our sensor, the sensory object and the knowing of it, the eye and the sight and the seeing, the body, the sensation, the feeling, the the ear, the sound, the hearing, and the mind, the thought, and the thinking. This is the beginning of our world, moment to moment, lies in that meeting, lies in that point of contact. Now, in that point of contact, perceptions have a Vedana tone, pleasant, unpleasant, or neither. If we are mindful and present at this point, we know these feelings just as they are. If we are less mindful, there is a whole continuum of events that begins to take place that suffocates equanimity. And it's very important to know that continuum in our experience, that there is contact, there is feeling in the absence of mindfulness, The pleasant begins to morph into craving. The unpleasant begins to morph into aversion. That which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant begins to morph into this sort of delusion or sense of disconnection. But we can see the continuum, the the contact, the craving, the aversion. Clinging is simply an intensification of that craving or aversion. But it is an intensification and it is a contraction. Grasping, craving, craving contact, craving aversion, clinging, becoming. That is simply part of that continuum. Oh, that I am happy, I am sad, you know, I am bored, I am fearful, I am aversive. It is all part of a continuum that ends up, of course, in what is called birth, this sense of I am. So where does equanimity come into this? Because we can see that continuum take place in different forms, different shapes, a thousand times in a single day. A thousand times, maybe more. So where does equanimity really come into this? Well, the closer we are to the moment of contact, the more possibility there is of not being caught by the underlying tendencies of craving and aversion. Equally near the pleasant, equally near the unpleasant, equally near that which seems neither pleasant nor unpleasant. There is also a continuum in this, that if there is not the movement towards, there is not the movement away from. Instead of this process of becoming, contracting, amnesia, there is this cooling in that moment of those winds of craving and aversion, a simple cooling, a poise to stand in the middle of all of this. To stand in the middle. Now, We talk a lot about craving and aversion, about pleasant or unpleasant, but we talk less about this space in between, this more 
neither pleasant nor unpleasant, sometimes called neutral, which for me is one of the most profound and fascinating parts of meditative practice. Because actually it includes so much of our experience. You know, there is so much in this moment which is neither particularly pleasant nor particularly unpleasant. I'm not excited about the microphone or the color of the carpet, you know, or the paint on the wall. It's neither particularly pleasant nor unpleasant. It simply is. This is true in our meditative practice, isn't it? That sometimes we sit and it is actually neither particularly pleasant nor unpleasant, it seems. It brings us into understanding, a, a questioning about how the, the whole world of perception. Because normally our relationship to that, which is neither a pleasant or unpleasant, is we just skim over it. We don't even see it. We don't even register it. And we space out. Now, it's interesting when we are really mindful or bring mindfulness to something which is neither pleasant nor unpleasant, it doesn't stay neutral. Why? Because the quality of mindfulness is actually pleasant. But then we see how much we live in a world of our personal world that is built upon the way we have fixed things into being pleasant or unpleasant. Have you ever noticed how we can go through life just saying, you know, oh, that's so beautiful, you know, or that's so ugly, or that's so awful, or that's so pleasing, you know, or that person is so wonderful, and that person is so disturbing. You know, we're just making this up as we go along. This is my world, but it is the world that I operate in, isn't it? Now, those perceptions, basically, those judgments we use, those labels we use, are really based upon how we have experienced something in the past. It's not even about how we're experiencing something in the present. It's about how we have experienced something in the past. So we see that same person, that same object, or that same pain, or that same thought again, and our minds immediately draw upon how we have experienced that in the past, and we fix it in that way in the present once more. You know, it's like if you're in the food line, you know, and this is the metaphor I use a lot, and the person in front of you takes the last of the salad. You know, you see that person an hour later, do we see them or do we see the person who took the last of the salad? And they are fixed in that for life. You know, as it, if it is unquestioned. Now, do we do this to ourselves also? We see a certain thought arising or a certain emotion arising. Oh, I'm like this. I've always been like this. I always will be like this. But what we see, as long as we are caught by the pleasant, the unpleasant, the underlying tendencies, and the way that they draw upon this world of association, this world of memory, actually we don't see anything anew. We don't see ourselves anew. We don't see another person anew. Equanimity as a Brahmavihara and as a fourth as a fourth jhana work quite consciously with this zone in between the pleasant and the unpleasant. Because if we really look at that zone, there is a coolness there. Because there is no fire of craving. 
There is no fire of aversion. And if we take away the delusion part, which says something's missing or something's wrong, that place where there's neither pleasant or unpleasant, nothing seems to be happening, that is a very powerful gateway to very profound sense of peace and equanimity. A very profound sense of calm. I often think of mindfulness in its deepest sense as being eventlessness. As being eventlessness. Because when we look at our lives, doesn't it seem like our lives is just a story, a collection of events? Hmm? This happened. This is happening. This might happen. I remember when this happened. It's how, it's how we formulate, how we describe our lives is this collection, this stream of events. Now, look at that in your practice. And what is an event? When we sit or walk, we see actually this stream of phenomena, don't we? Sights, sounds, feelings, touch, thoughts, emotions, sensations. It's simply a, a river of phenomena. Now, when in that river of phenomena contact is made, something is isolated, a thought, a body sensation, a sound, we see the sense of me, a sense of self arising with that isolating, and there is an event making. Something is plucked out of the stream, the river of phenomena, and turned into an event. Oh, this is. Now, when we don't, when that isolating is not happening through craving, aversion, clinging, the river of phenomena is uninterrupted. It's a quality of eventlessness. It just is. This is just what is happening. This is simply a process, moving, shifting, changing, freed from craving and aversion, cooling the fires, cooling the fires, and tasting inwardly that sense of unshakability, a sense of being unshakably near, present, standing amidst all things. I want to end with just reading you that quote from Neodanus again, because it gives you a sense of that. For one who clings, motion exists. But for one who does not cling, there is no motion. Where no motion is, there is stillness. Where stillness is, there is no craving. When no craving is, there is neither coming nor going. When no coming or going is, there is neither arising nor passing away. When neither arising nor passing away is, there is neither this world nor a world beyond, nor a state between, that this verily is the end of suffering. I wish you a wonderful day. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.